and welcome to Brain Bios. This is Ashley Maxine. And I'm Jeff Woodman. Jeff and I collaborated on a book that is due to come out in a couple of months called From Start to Finish, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Scientist in Psychology and Neuroscience. But even though we submitted the completed manuscript to our publisher, we realized that we are not done with the topic. So what we wanted to do was create a podcast where we would be able to have conversations with other people in the field, get to know them better, and also get to hear their perspective on some hot topic that would have been great to include in the book, but there just wasn't space for. Right. But for our first podcast, I'm going to interview Jeff. So Jeff Woodman is a associate professor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Jeff went to the University of Iowa for his undergraduate and graduate school years, and he had a postdoc at Vanderbilt before he was hired on as a faculty member. Jeff is a very honorable first guest for our podcast. He has won numerous prestigious awards in the field. Recently, he has won the Young Investigator Award from the Vision Sciences Society. He was a Vanderbilt Chancellor's Faculty Fellow, and maybe most notably, he won the Trolland Award from the National Academy of Science. Jeff, why don't you tell us what the Trolland Award is? Okay. The uh, Trolland Award goes to now the two top scientists under the age of 40. Um to study officially experimental psychology. It was named after Trolland, who uh, quantified the number of photons needed to stimulate a photoreceptor. So a vision award, it, which it was cool because I also study vision. So in this interview, you're going to hear Jeff and I chat about his origin story, about some experiences in graduate school, hopefully a little bit of advice about getting into grad school sprinkled in there, maybe what not to do. Right. I got lots of those (laughs) tidbits. Then we're going to talk a little bit about some of his pet peeves, such as, or primarily about scientific writing, and then we're going to end with a little bit of outside of work personal information about our friend, Dr. Woodman. Yeah, it should be really fun. We hope you enjoy. Metronome off. Testing. Ashley, how are we hearing you? Yeah, I think we can hear me. What do you think? Yeah, that, that sounds good. Okay. Welcome to our first episode of Brain Bios. I am here with Jeff Woodman, who is both my co-host and our first guest. So we were going to start today by getting to know Dr. Woodman. So my first question for you, Jeff, is where the heck are you from? That's a great question, Ashley. Um, I was born in a cornfield in Iowa. (laughs) I like the image (laughs) of you literally being born in a cornfield. Everyone in Iowa was born in a cornfield. Um, I think that was offensive. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really, I was born in Ames, Iowa, just north of Des Moines. Uh, my mom was a French and Spanish teacher at the high school, Ames High. It Ames High. And Wow. <laughs> Wait a minute. Do they say that there? That is the slogan. Oh, boy. A- 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 M-E-S-H-I-G-H. Yeah, okay, you're spelling it. A-I-M-S. <laughs> H I, no wait, is it just high? <laughs> did it wrong. Oh yeah, it's H I G H. We aim, or no, we aim high. You should, <laughs> you should leave the spelling to them. Aims high, aims high. <laughs> it's a very friendly place. So, um, my dad was a professor of sociology at Iowa State. I went to the University of Iowa as an undergraduate. Went rogue. Went to the Evil Empire, as it's known in Iowa, because it, it they do play the Star Wars Empire theme during football games. Um, I went there to go to college. Was my goal. So, like the degree was your goal. Mm, nah, I just wanted to stay out of the house for a while. Right. Okay. But um, and kind of figure things out. I had thought about going that I might, I was really interested in history. Uh, I like political science. Uh, and I thought that B- 
being a lawyer might be a really fun way to spend one's time. Um, based mostly on my love of mob movies. Okay. Because so. they always seem to like be able to have fun with the bad guys and then like walk away. Right. But now I'm better call Saul's really calling my logic into question there, <laughs> which was a good thing because I didn't actually go to law school. I wasn't actually that good in history, although I loved the history because I found out it was like being an English major, but you had to know the facts and get the dates right, which wasn't a problem. But like my writing was just a shit show. It was not good. We're going to definitely circle back to <laughs> your feelings on writing later in this podcast. Okay. So, um, what happened next? So you I took a site course, I'm guessing? Yeah, at some point I did. Actually, I took a communications course, and I started doing a little research with it, with uh, a guy in communication studies uh, based on how the press um, covered certain things like vivisection and other sorts of controversial topics in the 60s and 70s. It was really interesting. I spent a lot of time in the library going through microfiche and extremely old uh, newspapers and uh, magazines. It was super cool for like someone who likes crusty things like me. I then took a psych class um, kind of for the general ed requirement. Uh, I probably like most people who first take a psych class was thinking it was gonna be about crazy people and how to, how to, how to help troubled family members and stuff like that. But it actually turned out to be quite a bit of science and like how memory works and how we learn and how it develops in kids and, you know, all the stuff that I now know psychology to be, but at the time had no clue. Um, and you started doing research with someone in the psych department? I did. So, you know, as a sophomore, you have to declare a major. So I declared psych, got into the honors program, started doing an honors thesis with Tom Spaulding. He studies categorization, had worked with Brian Ross at Illinois. Um, it was fun stuff. Tom like let really kind of let me make up my own stimuli in order to test a hypothesis that was really cool. Um, so I kind of I had an idea of what research was like from doing that, uh, mostly running subjects though. Uh, I didn't like program the study or anything. Um, Did you have any internship experiences to decide if you wanted to help people or not? Great question, Dr. Maxey. Turns <laughs> out I did. Um, so as a, I guess I was probably a junior and uh, I had gotten deep enough into the psych curriculum to realize that there was this kind of division of between clinical and, and more basic mechanisms of the brain. And, um, I had thought, well, I want to be a clinical psychologist cause I want to help people with my greatness. And it turns <laughs> out <laughs> that I was not very good at that. And I got to learn a little hands-on. Um, I volunteered at the crisis center, um, in Iowa City, um, uh, and staffed phones there, like during the day for like a month or so, or several months, I think, um, and then got trained to do the all night like crisis phone line, uh, and I did that for I think a year or more, just long enough, actually two or three times longer than I needed to find out that. Um, a lot of the people that really needed us the most uh, did not seem capable or, or able to change for whatever reason. And, you know, as someone who answers the phone in the middle of the night, you don't know exactly what it is that they're going through. But if I found it to be a heart-wrenching experience in which I could not really help the people that really needed to be helped. I then take abnormal psych and find that the numbers are not awesome across the board. And that got me a little more interested in um, uh, how the machine of the brain works. Um, and the logic was totally straightforward, which is, wait a second, if, we're not, if our success rate on curing disorders of the brain is, uh, is in the teens to 20s, then 
uh, maybe we should figure out how it works first, right? That seems like a starting point. And then from there, we'll know how to fix it when it breaks down. But, but uh, you know, we're working on both of these problems simultaneously. Um, so from there, I applied to grad schools. I was pretty selective. I applied to kind of large programs uh, at big state schools generally. Um, and I got in with full stipend support at one place, which was where I already was at the University of Iowa. I, I was waitlisted at uh, UT Austin, I believe, and I don't think I ever heard back from them, although I've gone and given a talk there after I became a professor. I should have asked them what happened with my application. <laughs> Do you know what? I, that's so funny because I also have a similar story where I hadn't heard from Duke and I had heard from other schools, so I called the you know administrative yeah. assistant, and she said to me, "If you'd got into, if you had gotten into Duke, you would know." Right, right. I was like, "Oh, yeah. okay, so this is how we roll." I right, guess. there's an Air Force flyover. <laughs> <laughs> the sonic boom shatters all your windows. <laughs> <laughs> I love how grad programs are like. You're so pathetic. We're not even going to waste yeah. the energy to reject yeah. you. That happened to me. It happened to me too. Well, so. You know, I, I was like kind of last in the door probably in my program. Wait, we should back up a little bit. Yeah. Why, why do you think you only got into one program? Do you have any thoughts about that? Did you like... Oh, great question. Yeah, yeah I, I can totally do a good autopsy on the application process <laughs> now. <laughs> there were several large mistakes. So I had gotten good advice from people, which was... Do, do your homework on the faculty ahead of time because you're going to want to mention specific faculty and their work in your in your statements of purpose and your research statements that you submit. So I did that, but I didn't ask follow-up questions of like, wait, should they like do similar things or should I should it just look like I like printed out the faculty list and fired a shotgun at it and wherever the BB hit, I said that person. Because that's what it... It ended up being three people in totally different areas of cognition, you know, cognitive psychology right. and neuroscience. It was just kind of like these three people sounded cool. Right. Uh, okay. Was this like in the days before email? Were you writing dinosaurs? When was this? Yeah. This, you <laughs> had to, uh, it was all smoke signals <laughs> for my people. So, uh, no. I asked you this because of the advice of reaching out to potential mentors. So right. I'm not I'm not understanding whether or not you did that. Right. Yeah. So in the mid to late 90s, email would actually was really bad. It was like DOS interface stuff, but email existed. And I did uh, not email anybody <laughs> before I had to see if they were taking students. I looked them up and I like looked at the paper. I like so did do the homework. It just, you just meant find out who they are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And no, the, this was my interpretation of the advice. Go online and see some bitching people. And did, there, did everybody have websites then? <laughs> I feel like this is an, an archaeological dig that I'm not totally understanding. Right. So it actually, there was, it was a multi-step process back in the day. That right. Websites existed for the department and they listed faculty. Most people didn't have individual websites unless you were like Steve Jobs oh, or well, something. Oh, that's so hard. I mean, I could understand why you would not apply very right. wisely. Right. Well, but then you would go to PsychInfo, put in their name, look up their papers, like oh, so, it was. My gosh. Research was used to be a thing that did people did. Did you tie did. up your horse out front <laughs> while you were on second phone? <laughs> yeah, well, wow. I was. I had a lot of time. I was waiting to hear back from UT Austin. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I'm just kidding. He's still I love waiting. you guys. He's still I love waiting. you guys. My family's from West Texas. I'm practically a Longhorn at heart. <laughs> Um, okay, so you only got into one school. We understand why. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Well, so for example, at one place, one of the people I picked out had a really cool title. It was emeritus. So <laughs> I assumed that person must be so smart. Very important. So fancy. I mean, the other ones just had like professor right. and like associate professor. What do they like hang out with the professors? Right. So it didn't, that was clearly a hindrance in the judging of my application. Do you want to tell the people listening why, just in case they're undergrads? Right. So 
is covered extensively in Ashley's beautiful chapter of our book, but uh, but I have totally different things to say about that, <laughs> which is what when uh, when your application's received by a, a psych department, people look at who you're interested in working with as a uh, to judge what you're interested in, right? And if you list a clinical psychologist and a social psychologist and someone who studies place cells in rodents, right? They're going to know you're interested in everything and therefore probably nothing, right? That's, those are the, the, those are somewhat immature interests in the field, which is that like, oh my gosh, everything's so cool. I don't know what I want to do. Right? And that's what you did. And that's what I did. So a mature application targets people with overlapping or similar research interests, right. which is what I did at a couple of places by chance, I guess. But okay, so you stayed in Iowa City. Yes, so I stayed in Iowa City. I became the mayor of Iowa City. <laughs> who did <laughs> they, you Who did you work with? Um, uh, I worked with both Steve Luck and Tom Spaulding initially. Tom then moved to Western uh, in Ontario, and um, uh, at that point, I transitioned to working with Steve Luck. Um, so tell me just briefly what working in Steve's lab was like. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I had, it was, a, it was an exciting lab. We were doing human cognitive neuroscience. So it, the, I found the multidimensional data set that is having both voltages from the head and reaction times and accuracies and the traditional cognitive psychological measures to be really cool. Very exciting. Steve's lab was structured such that there was a full-time RA and then several other graduate students in the lab. One of them, uh, Ed Vogel, who's now a professor at um, the University of Chicago. He was a second or third year. I think he was a third year my first year. Uh, and then he was there two more years as I figured out what was going on. He got me up to speed really quick. We kind of paired to work together on a project and then I started my own project after I'd been there about a month or so I just picked Steve advised me to pick an experiment from the grant he's like we need to do all these so pick one um, and then uh, I picked one that <laughs> I, I used my same cool meter that I used to pick which faculty I wanted to meet to work with to pick an experiment from the grant um, uh, programmed it up and ran it uh, and then ultimately that became my first year project and was published and things went well. Um, so, yeah. So then why did you decide to pursue a postdoc? Did you consider going on the job market right after grad school? Good question. I didn't really seriously look for a faculty position at why? that point. I didn't apply anywhere. Um, I had... Uh, I think when I was interviewing for my postdoc, I had like 15 papers in press or under review. Almost most of those were, or are out, you know, like 15 in some either in print, press, or under review. So probably would have been enough to put some feelers in the water. I'm glad I did didn't and I think one of the reasons I didn't was that uh, my writing was still not great uh, it was about a year after I got done with graduate school that I could I could send a manuscript to co-authors and not get it back all read so um, uh, so I remember like in the year after I I defended my dissertation and I got my first manuscript back from co-authors and and virtually nothing was changed and they were like this is great it's ready to go and that was not some not was not the experiences i enjoyed prior to that point so it took like 20 papers or something like that for me to start being able to write a decent one um, and that's what took so long so, so what where was your postdoc um for a postdoc i went to vanderbilt university in nashville tennessee where i actually am now a professor um I went there to work with Marvin Chun, who did human neuroimaging, and Jeff Shaw, who did um, 
single unit and multi-unit monkey electrophysiology. Um, so it was to do very different things. That was a very cool experience working with having, getting uh, exposure to how two different labs work using two different methods, different questions and philosophies and stuff was very useful to really, to get multiple learning trials, to get multiple examples of, of how it's done. So during um, your postdoc, are you trying to decide what kind of lab you're going to want to have, or do you know all along, and these are just training, not just, right. but these are training experiences? Right. No, it, for me, it was very much still trying to figure out, like, what were the tools that I was going to use? Uh, I, I, you know, even through graduate school, did some MEG and... Uh, you know, I think collaborated with a number of different people. So I've always kind of been trying to add to my methodological toolbox. Um, and even as a, uh, you know, even in our lab, while I was a professor, you know, we've added methods to, to you know, get additional leverage to f try to figure out what's going on. I, you know, so as a postdoc, I was still very much open to the idea that, well, maybe it was going to be human neuroimaging, maybe, maybe it was going to be human electrophysiology, maybe it'd be non-human primate work. Um, and when I was on the job market, depending on the resources of the university, uh, I could pitch myself in different ways, right? Because if they don't have a monkey facility, I could get by being a human uh, cognitive neuroscientist. Um, I love to collaborate with people who have monkeys and I, I love the, the monkey work. Um, but at the time I, I really did not know exactly what I was going to do. Um, I knew I understood human event related potentials and EEG recordings well at that point because, uh, I'd been in Steve Locke's lab when he was writing the book. <laughs> the the his introduction to the use of the event or to the event related potential technique so it was so I learned far more than the average graduate student about what the method was that I was using then so that variety of experiences probably really helped you land your job at Vanderbilt now yeah I you know and I wouldn't discourage anyone from uh, getting a diversity of methods so what is your job like now at Vanderbilt? What's your lab like? Um, uh, we have three recording setups, several behavioral running rooms. Um, I think my lab's probably about medium-sized for uh, across uh, psychology and neuroscience labs. Um, uh Right now we have one graduate student and three postdocs. <laughs> I, I, I was slow to answer that because people, the door has been swinging and people come in, coming and going fairly rapidly. Um, it's a little smaller than we have probably been at, at some maximum points, but um, keeping the number below eight like, you know, grad students and postdocs I find to be incredibly important. And that's even where we're incredibly fortunate to, to have um, generous government funding right now with three concurrent R01s. So that allows us to, to pay everybody. And, and that's typically not the problem. Typically the problem is giving everyone adequate supervision and attention and help and getting everybody a cool tasty project that might turn into a big paper um, you know generally it's it's that kind of stuff the resource limitations in our heads not not on not in the bank account ideally sometimes it is there too though so so since you raised this issue of giving people attention and having them write out papers i thought we should get back to this writing issue. Right. So I know that you are a stickler for scientific writing. You've taught a graduate course on scientific writing. I know that you have strong opinions about reviewing papers because you serve as an AE at a JEP journal. 
And I think that this is a topic that we would have loved to fit into the book and we couldn't. So what are your, what's sort of the things that you would have liked to be able to cover when it comes to scientific writing? Right. So this mostly is advice for graduate students and postdocs, because that's really when you start relying upon your scientific writing to add papers reporting the findings of your experiments um, to your CV so that you can get that next great job down the line. And it, it never stops growing in importance. So by the time you're a, uh, an assistant professor, you're probably spending most of your time writing um, grants and papers and paper reviews of, of all sorts. Um, and it's never too early to start learning how to write a scientific paper. Well, most of us get a little taste of that um, writing honors theses as undergraduates um, and you add to it as you start contributing to journal publications as uh, perhaps as an undergraduate more so as a research assistant and then as you move through stages of your career just more and more time is devoted to this to this really difficult task of describing your findings understanding what they mean and telling people about what they mean yeah so it took me uh i think my interest in it comes from it being a weakness of mine. So I'm not very good at it. Uh, so I've tried to be a student of the game, uh, maybe more so than people who have more of a, a natural talent or a gift for it. Um, you know, I did okay in English classes and stuff in, in college and high school. Um, but, you know, creative writing is so different than scientific writing. Writing for clarity without metaphor okay so let's <laughs> talk difficult about this. for yeah. me so it's one of the things that you are really interested in are thing or things that you comment on a lot are for example how many alternatives are you including in your setup so like how many hypotheses someone uh -huh. should have for example so why are you a stickler for that right so um right well and this is the kind of like origin story time the what the, how i got how i really started to think about this at an explicit level which is how do i write this paper and well like how do i motivate the experiments mm -hmm. that i ran um was uh really through the reviewing process so uh in graduate school steve luck would uh, share some of the reviewing duties with me after I became a fourth or fifth year grad student. So um, maybe my third year, I, he, he, he and I did one or two together. Um, and so but it got to the point that when I was a postdoc, uh, I would, these were still the days where I would print out every manuscript that I reviewed. So mm -hmm. I printed them all out and had them stacked up in my office. So at the end of the year, I'd count them and see. And one year I had reviewed over 100 manuscripts. Uh, and through this, I it sounds like torture, <laughs> but it was so useful for understanding um, what, diff what papers um, different types of journals are looking for. Um, how do you, what is a theoretically relevant way to... to motivate a paper to set up your hypotheses in the paper um, what are the common uh, alternative explanations fatal flaws in in the field in which I work so you get to actually under learn the landscape while doing service work to the field um, it also improves your writing because here now you need to write the authors got what it 78 manuscript pages at a JEP journal to, to say what they wanted to say. And now in two to three pages max, right? I, maybe one, if you could do it, uh, you need to describe why it, it, it should or shouldn't be published and, and what they need to fix for it so it could be published, <laughs> right? And the logic behind why it's necessary to fix it. So you have to write really concisely, and I found it to be an incredibly useful thing. It was really through this process of writing reviews that I think I, it helped my thinking about, pro about projects and what we do here more than probably anything else. Um, and... Yeah. So now I'm an associate editor at, at uh, JPHPP, which is the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Human 
perception and performance. And, um, you know, and I, now I realize there's really kind of a formula for papers at certain journals. So at our journal and many others, actually, most of the high impact journals, what they're really looking for is what we kind of jargon like say as theoretical relevance. That is your, you need to be telling the reader why your experiment is going to test a theory, ideally distinguish between competing theories, right? And that, uh, that formula is almost straight, so straightforward at, at many journals that you can determine whether a paper has got a good shot at getting in by just going to the end of the introduction section and checking to see if there are hypotheses that are motivated by the theoretical review from earlier in the, the intro. So the way that you're saying this, it sounds really obvious. So could you give an example of when people don't do this? So, right. So like what else would they <laughs> right, be right. motivated yeah, by? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I do. <laughs> so the common pitfall that that uh, I've fallen into it too in, in papers is that you do a you do a theoretical review where you'll say, oh, there's this theory of attention because of, or in this theory of attention. And they account for performance in these different ways. And there's some evidence for this, but there's some evidence for this too. Uh, and th therefore, we don't completely understand attention. So he, the goal here was to explore blah, 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 right? So people will do a theoretical review and then pivot. It, it's essentially all just motivating a sentence that says, but we don't really know, or, but we don't know this thing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like we know all of this stuff about how people find targets in complex scenes, but we don't know this thing. And uh, so we're going to explore that in five experiments in which we show that as you increase the number of, of, you know, rainbows in a picture, people smile <laughs> more, right? So, but that's, but there's no theoretical debate about whether rainbows are going to make people smile more. Your prediction and your experimental setup isn't at the crux of some raging debate about how the brain's performing this. You're, you are reviewing what people have debated about how the brain is doing this. And then you're saying, but we don't know what happens in my experiment. So I ran my experiment and I found this. Well, it's possible that that is a theoretically relevant result and you just didn't really, and you hadn't thought about how it is, right? And sometimes reviewers can catch that and say like, hey, by the way, you're sitting on a pot of gold here, by the way, <laughs> if you motivate it like this, if you say that this theory predicts that and this one that, and there you go. and. I've had reviewers do that for me. I've done that as a reviewer and I've seen other people do it as in the, the review process. So, so what if somebody were to respond to that by saying, well, there surely are questions where there aren't good theories to motivate, you know, like somebody had to go first essentially in some area. What would you, what would you say if somebody was saying, you know, the argument of like, well, there aren't good theory, there aren't relevant theories in the first place. Right. Um, yeah, that's a, that, there's something in James. <laughs> <laughs> so you're there's, saying you're not going far back enough if that's yeah, your, yeah. I mean, if, if, no one's made any assertions about how this is done in the mind or the brain there it's unlikely you've dug far enough mm -hmm. i just okay i yeah. mean yeah i just when you read the principles of psychology it is it's everything's in there you know there's lots of these you know, when i read nicer's book or pillsbury's book from 1908 you read these books and you realize oh these guys were talking about all this stuff yeah same and question. it was uh, and different time. just different words <laughs> they just had different words for it right. um but uh uh, anyway. Okay. So let me raise a couple other things I've heard you, uh, be a stickler for. So you mentioned this idea of having hypotheses, um, 
I've heard you get frustrated about people not distinguishing appropriately between hypotheses and predictions. Oh, God, this is So just, let's uh, hear your 60-second uh, rant on this. I, I've got the gilded soapbox to stand on. I'm just kidding. No, but it is an interesting thing, and I think st- t- the, the way we have to teach statistics, at least uh, null hypothesis testing s- statistics, tends to make this more difficult for people to for me to sort out in my mind when when I was taught it but a hypothesis is a statement about how the brain works and I'm just going to say brain to include the mind in mm-hmm. case there's some dualist out there but um so that hypothesis uh could be tested in a number of different ways it could be tested with optogenetics or questionnaires or whatever right but uh and that way that you the specific way you are going to test it are the predictions right but the hypo but you can't say i hypothesize that (laughs) subjects are going to be faster Mm -hmm. when there's four things they have to to recognize than when there's one so would it be fair to say that a prediction describes a pattern of data and a hypothesis is what it means? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yes. That's to, it, I try to be a little more specific with the hypothesis thing, which is that it is a description of the mechanisms in the brain that are carrying out this thing, right? So that like attention uh, is selecting whole objects, mm-hmm. right? Let's just go back to 80s. 90s but and if that is the case then when I measure fMRI I should in they're doing this task I should see this pattern right or when I record EEG I should see this pattern right but the the those are the predictions the hypothesis is always a, a general statement about how mechanisms of the brain work you then filter that that general statement through the experimental design out, and out which pop the, the predictions that you should be describing for the reader before they get to it in the paper, ideally. Okay, so in your lab meeting this week, you were talking about this issue of how many hypotheses you should have when you set up your work. Right. What's that about? Well, uh, I think you always need an alternative hypothesis Having one hypothesis is great. If it's one theoretically motivated hypothesis, that is that the dominant theory of memory is temporal contiguity model, and it predicts this, right? Uh, so we're going to test that prediction. And that's, that's a theoretically significant test of a model. And, and a paper that does that is fine. Of course, implicit in that is, or nothing right or not (laughs) and and all the rest of that space right uh is our possible outcomes that are at least made implicit in the paper what is very useful is if a paper can set up some some tension Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is that well based on this previous work and this theoretical perspective uh we can expect that the brain works like this and therefore we should see pattern a based on this theoretical perspective, this background work, um, that we should predict pattern B, right? And that you can actually get totally different predictions out of the same experimental design. The idea that there is some other possible outcome is absolutely necessary, (laughs) right? So if it was, if someone wants to run an experiment to show that shows that, uh, uh, people's reaction times are slower when they have to make multiple choices uh, in order to respond, right? They have to, if they have to press four buttons, is it going to take longer than if they have to press one button? Well, we don't. There is no other out- outcome. And that empirical finding is uh, like Hicks Law. And so, so, I mean, this stuff is old <laughs> and exists. And anyway. Okay, so... Are there particular reasons why you think... I'm trying to get at the length issue, though. Right. Uh, Yes. I think that... So two is a great number of hypotheses to have. 
there's a plot there. This experiment could have come out either way. And we've learned something that we, that wasn't given before. I, my own experiences have been when I've tried to submit papers or even when I try to write papers that have three or more hypotheses, just my mind melts down, right? So that here are these three competing hypotheses and it, you know, it, it's, it's difficult for readers also, I think to, to represent. So you're taxing the cognitive limitations of the reader to entertain three different patterns of results from three different, um, hypotheses. Because as a scientist, too, we're typically thinking of alternative explanations, even with a single explanation, right? So one hypothesis, you're usually thinking of, wait, well, are there other alternatives to that hypothesis that people, that are plausible and that people are discussing? So typically, you know, it's like number of hypotheses times two is really what you're trying to maintain in your head. And so after two, you know, working memory capacity just explodes. And, and I, I think it's difficult for a reader, um, a writer to, to manage the material. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rodiger has a good piece from APS observer from probably 15 years ago now where he says, don't have too many subplots in your paper. And I, it's exactly the same advice, which is, uh, you know, don't be telling them this story and then say, hey, but we wanted to look at this. And so we looked at that, you know, so same sort of thing. Consider the cognitive limitations of the reader. Okay, so now that we've had the opportunity to cover your pet peeves, there are two more main things I wanted to talk about. The first is why you love your job, why you're glad that you did this. Right. And the other is your life outside of work. And then maybe at the end, I could share with our listeners information, very personal information about you oh, that you're leaving out. That's perfect. I love this. Okay. Um, Why do you love this? Yeah. Well, uh, the career, being a scientist is awesome. Uh, you get to, uh, you get to just kind of let your mind wander around. It, it gives your... It gives my brain a puzzle to turn on that isn't why people aren't doing what I want them to do or something <laughs> else that, that doesn't lead to happiness. So, you know, it really it is this like healthy, cognitive and creative outlet. And I can ruminate as much as I want about theories and experiments and predictions and how the, the data turned out and all that stuff. And it's all useful there's like no bad thinking about that. Uh, whereas like thinking about my health or something like none of that's going to be good for me compared to <laughs> like how work is. I also like that the immense freedom that we're given is just incredible. Um, uh, you know, what time do I want to work this semester? Hmm. I like 1 PM, right? So we get to pick what, when we teach to some degree, what classes we teach to some degree, right? So departments have needs and I don't get to just say like, well, I'd like to teach basket weaving. I know nothing and we'll learn together. But, <laughs> uh, and, and there, you know, and we have to spread out our classes. But to the, for the most part, I get to do what I want to do. It's absolutely amazing. And when it comes to research, it's just whatever you're most interested in. Uh, and the great thing is, is that if you study something for a while, you kind of lose the belly fire for it. You pivot and you start studying something else and, you know, do something else that you think's cool. Uh, and th that's been uh, really fun uh, just to be able to, to have an interesting walk through a theoretical landscape. So if, if memory serves, <laughs> the other question was about outside what, what do I do when I'm not worky working? Um, well, sometimes it's this kind of stuff. I'm married to a really driven scientist. So she sounds incredible. She's a super woman. So we do actually work quite a bit, even at home. Uh, and that's kind of part of the, the, the great thing about the job too, which is, you know, you can be there full time for your kids, at least if you're my wife. And uh, when they get off the bus and get them to bed and then switch to, to work, 
my serial switching's a little slower. But um, so that's why I love the job, right? Um, I would actually say the stuff I do outside of work is kind of similar in that I have, I also kind of just have just done whatever tripped my fancy at the time. So I've gone through heavy reading phases. Most recently I read like all the young adult fantasy fiction. Like it started with Harry Potter and then, and then Percy Jackson and then the Kane series. And anyway, I've read all of the books that, that the middle schoolers are reading. So, <laughs> so you could really hang with a middle school book club. Middle Yeah. Yes. Do you think elementary a, school? Do you think you should have said elementary I school? I could have been elementary school. Percy Jackson's a pretty easy read. So um, anyway, I two summers ago, I rebuilt a 79 convertible Volkswagen Bug because uh, my wife said it would be a good thing to do. And I think she knew I was... I go crazy without something to do with my hands. I've remodeled four bathrooms and have a kitchen that's ready to go in. And so I like enjoy working on the house, you know, still mow my own yard, that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question that I would ask you if you were a child. Do you have any pets? <laughs> I do have pets. Do you want to hear about the pets that died? Those are, that's Why what do kids my, do that? That's what, that's what our kids do. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Our best dog was Abby. She's dead now. No. Um, so, yes, we have uh, I whatever. We're, we have a, a dog named Archie. I'll always say he's four, but he's like six-ish, I think. He looks like a like a tiny little fox or something. House fox. House fox. He's cuddly though, unlike most house foxes that are just <laughs> there. They're, the worst. they're just there for the chickens. The um, and then we have a big gray tabby girl named Gertrude, and a what's Gertrude's full name? It's like Gertrude Delaney. Uh, brought to you by Nissan, <laughs> right? It's Gertrude Delaney Walker, gray cat, sponsored by Nissan. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, yeah, we got we got some major Skrilla for that, that <laughs> those naming rights on the cat. Edgar's named after Edgar Adrian. Who, Who's Edgar? Oh, he's the cat. The other cat is like twelve. He is old and a little more complainy than he used to be, but he's a sweet old guy. He's named after Edgar Adrian, who, uh, I don't know, I guess about like 15 years ago or so, I, st I figured out was my great, great, great academic grandfather uh, who had won the Nobel Prize, shared it with Sherrington. So that shocked me. So I named a cat after him. <laughs> was he also grumpy? He was he was like the mayor or no, he's like the Lord of Cambridge or something like that. Wrote Is that his, an elected position? I don't think it's England, right? It, it was all really so some sort of sword on the so shoulder. He, so he's probably not a nice guy. That's what oh, I don't know. I'm sure he was very proper. I mean, he was quite, a, yes. quite. No, I, he was actually people generally widely respected him as far as I could tell. Right. Sometimes there's always, a, you know, even hundred years later, you know who was difficult, and I don't believe him. To, <laughs> I don't believe him to be one of I'm those people. I'm just joking. I'm joking. I know. I'm just. Hey, I, I would say, yeah. I mean, who knows though? Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? I don't think so. I really feel like you've been thorough. Uh, I do feel like, uh, in addition to the book where we do share a lot of like personal stories about ourselves and why we think these are good of good pieces of advice and You're that making kind of, me feel like the whole thing was a bad idea no no i think it was great to lay our souls bare oh, Jesus. i think they're also gonna learn too late? i think they're gonna learn yeah i think they're gonna learn quite a bit of about us from this stuff too which is i don't know this might just be a train wreck <laughs> <laughs>
it's either well, good, right, it's going to either improve our ability to recruit fine scientists to our lab or it's going to turn it all into a dumpster fire i so. think dumpster fire is such a strong term okay. so i have a couple of fun facts that i would like to share in closing oh do tell uh number one I actually believe that the reason you like research is because you are creative and Aww. you are an artist. Aww. So you uh, have not told anybody that you like cartoons. Not You don't like cartoons. You draw cartoons. <laughs> I do also like cartoons. <laughs> <It's a> fucking <laughs> man child. <laughs> yeah, when the kids wanted to go to The Incredibles, I pushed them out of the way. Out of the way true. Right in it. But you also can draw very well and you like to do that yeah and you have a lot of artwork from high school i think in the house yeah so there's that the another interesting little tidbit about jeff woodman is that i think that he is just always ready to go with another career if necessary (laughs) (laughs) why why do you think that ashley because not only will you start a project like uh, re- like working on the car, getting that Volkswagen running, but you will also then like think about taking it to the next level. So you like fantasized about turning old cars into electric cars, right? And you came up with a name for that business. <laughs> Do you remember what it was? It's Classic Sparks. <laughs> We will take any vehicle that's structurally sound and turn it into a plug-in electric car. Okay, right. We'll even get a recording of the original engine sound. And you can press a button from inside and it'll run, run, run. This is is my point, exactly. Uh, Another one would be... I have um, investors in place. See? This is what I'm talking about. Another would be um, candy wrappers. Do you want to share? Yeah, okay. So I, I enjoy a clean vehicle as much <laughs> as the next person. And when we bought uh, a new car a couple of years ago, it had, the car companies have started putting like a little bit of plastic, like plastic stickers over the like high traffic parts where the paint is likely to chip and stuff. And then I was watching it and I thought, why not wrap this whole thing in plastic? <laughs> now, I know this sounds like what like a 60s grandma would do or a couch, right? So that someone wouldn't spill apple How juice on it. How old are you anyway? I'm pretty close, that far pretty close to that. So, so right, I just wanted to wrap my couch, which is my car, in plastic. <laughs> but here's the deal. You'd never have to wax it, right? You wash it and you can put down a couple of layers so that like, you can pull off a layer and it's brand new underneath you know that you're way more jazz talking about this than, <laughs> than you've read this entire podcast <laughs> well that's because this is a new exciting venture <laughs> something's got to get us something's got to work this isn't going well clearly so we need to start brainstorming some okay new well ideas. i was going to share more personal stories but i guess we'll end there it was really fun chatting with you it was great to chat with you Maybe I'll see you again soon. Hopefully. You want to go watch some Netflix? Let's do that. Ciao.